2 Corinthians very much takes off or takes up where uh, 1 Corinthians let off. Um, so let's review just a little bit about 1 Corinthians. It was a letter that Paul wrote. Uh, we know of at least four letters that he wrote. We have two of them in our text, our Bible. Um, and both of those letters reference other letters, which is how we know those others exist. Um, there was a first short letter, and then what we have as 1 Corinthians was what we think is the second letter. It's longer, and it dealt with a lot of issues that were cropping up in that community, problems that were arising as they were trying to be family and trying to figure out what it meant to be the church in their particular context in Corinth. Um, and there, there were some moments of happiness and encouragement, and there were moments of Paul being stern and instructive. Um, but we talked about Corinth here is on our map in the middle here. And we talked about how this is obviously a land bridge between these two masses of land, but it also served as a, a route for boats. There is today a canal that was not at that day. They would pull ships into this bay. They would actually put them up on rollers and roll them across six miles and then drop them into the water here and they would sail on, which sounds like a lot of work to me, but apparently it was easier than sailing around Greece. Um, but as a result of that, Corinth became known, Rome was it was said that all roads led to Rome, but all roads led through Corinth. And because, so it became a, a traveling haven or a passageway for people all over the empire as they moved from one place to the other. And as a result, there was an economy that built up around it. The population was somewhat transient, people in and out all the time. Um, in this time and place, things like rhetorical speech were uh, all the rage. You would go into the marketplace, there would be people that were given up, philosophers and speakers of all sorts of kinds. They would stand up on podiums or stages such as this, just in the public, and they would, give, they would speak their ideas and their thoughts. And um, the way people learned and debated was in that common space. So that was common a lot. Um, and all of that culture kind of led to this culture of sort of honor and shame. And so we obviously have reputations and we don't want to be embarrassed, but in, in their day to everything you did either added or subtracted from your, your status of, of honor in, the, in the, the eyes of those around you. And so as people would get up and speak in this way, they would be speaking either well or not well, or they would debate. And if you won the debate, your, your level of honor would rise. If you lost, you would be shamed and you would sort of carry that with you until you could come back and prove yourself once again. And this was uh, a big part of all of culture in this time throughout the Greco-Roman world, but particularly here in Corinth, where speakers were coming through all the time and they would get up and they would speak. And so there was constant debate going on in the public sphere about who was right, who was wrong, and, and which philosophy was better, or which religion was better, whose way of life was better. Um, and, and they were all sort of always on, in a sense, always on the stage to present their ideas and their thoughts in the best light possible. And that culture had caused problems in which Paul, or to which Paul was writing in that first letter. And we won't rehash all of those issues. Um, but suffice to say that things have gotten worse for Paul as he writes 2 Corinthians. There's been a time that's, that's gone by. There have been more uh, traveling speakers, particularly people that are coming, who Paul refers to in his second letter as super apostles. And that is a sarcastic term. As, as he says, they're, they're really not that at all. Um, but they, feeding into this culture of honor and shame and the way that which their world works, were speaking for their ideas against Paul's, and they were winning in the eyes of the Corinthian church. And so Paul pens this Second Corinthians letter in response to that reality that he is lo losing influence over the church, and in his eyes, the church, and rightly so, is going astray and listening to false prophets um, and being led into areas that they ought not be led into. 
As always, I do encourage you from today and through this week to go read this letter. And I do want to just mention as you start to do that, this is, this is an odd or different letter for Paul. Part of it is the subject matter he's writing uh, not to edify necessarily or to prop up. He's not writing a long treatise on theology like Romans is, for example. He's writing to defend himself. And so it takes on a completely different tone and flavor. And there is some discussion about whether or not this is actually two letters put together. Um, and the reason for that is because the tones do change dramatically as you read through the book. And so just be prepared for Paul to be positive and he speaks of reconciliation in the first part and then towards the the latter part, it gets worse. The tone gets much more heated and heavy. The second part from chapter 10 on is thought to be maybe actually the first letter, so letter three that Paul would have written. Um, And the the reason it's second is the tendency was to order things in length. So the longer things come first. In fact, if you look at our New Testament, that's the way all Paul's letters are written. All of Romans being the longest comes first when it's in fact one of the last letters he writes. And so that was the, the way they ordered these things. And so it may be that there are two letters stuck together. There are other people who think that Paul, it's one letter and it was written over a period of time as he was traveling. And so one day he sat down and he was feeling pretty good about things and he would write in that mood. And then the next day he gets a report from Titus or Timothy or someone else that's come from the church and things are not going well and he's a little more heated. And so that's possible. All of this is speculation. The point I want to get across is it weaves back and forth. Just be prepared for a little bit of chaos in the letter. It's not a nice linear argument that Paul makes in some of his other letters. Um, and so if you read that and you have questions, please ask them. Uh, we have plenty of resources that we can deploy to help make sense of what's going on. Um, but as I said, between the, these two letters that we have, 1 and 2 Corinthians, uh, this, this relationship has gotten really rocky. Um, we've had, as he says, super apostles that have come in, and we know something about them. In the 11th chapter, he writes about them in defending himself. He says, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? Are they ministers of Christ? I am talking like a madman. Says, I am better than, I am a better one. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless floggings, and often near death. So that's in part of the stretch where Paul's trying to uh, redeem himself in the eyes of the Corinthians. But what it tells us is who these people were. We know they were Jews. They were Christians. They were largely Greek-speaking because they're here in Corinth in a Greek culture. And so we know something about them. And so what's going on here is something similar to what's happening in Galatians. We have um, Jewish Christians who are likely coming to Corinth who are trying to instill upon the Corinthians a Jewish way of life. This is an Old Testament, New Testament discussion, Old Covenant, New Covenant discussion. And in the letter, Paul addresses that. Um, But in doing so, in in the case of Galatians, which we'll get to in a couple weeks, it was just an argument over whether or not the Galatians, the Greeks, the the Gentiles who had become Christians, needed to adopt all of the laws and the rules of Judaism. Here, it's that combined with all of this honor culture stuff that's going on. And as these super apostles come, they are degrading Paul. They're speaking ill of him. They're saying he's not impressive. He's a charlatan. They raise questions about whether or not the money that he's trying to raise for the home church in Jerusalem, the mother church, the first church, will actually ever reach it. How do you know he's not going to steal the money and run off with it? Um, And so they're doing lots to undercut his authority and his standing with the the Corinthians. And so this letter is trying to put put himself back on firm standing with them and prove to them that he is not, in fact, the things that they say. And as he does that, 
He actually agrees with these super apostles. And his argument is one that says, uh, I am am unimpressive. And he flips the scripts. He says, I am lowly, but it's through the lowliness, the weakness that God has worked. Um, And he turns to the church actually and says, look at yourself, right? He says, I'm I'm not impressive. We do know a little bit about Paul. There's a later historian that in one of his writings talks about Paul approaching him. He was a short little man. He was bow-legged and he had a big fat unibrow, right? He's not like this super like gallant man, like who's would, would look impressive at all. He's just this little like bow-legged guy with a big unibrow. So he's not real attractive. I, I don't know. Maybe they thought unibrows were attractive back then, but they're odd for us, right? Um, but he, in, in the, the historical document, he came sort of like walking over the hill. And I just, you just have this picture of this like bow-legged guy walking. He probably walked with a limp. I mean, you got to remember he's been stoned. He's been flogged. He's been imprisoned. He's carrying the scars of a hard, hard life. Um, and so... They're right. He's not an impressive figure in any sort of way. Um, but he, he grabs hold of that, and he says, no, I'm not, not at all. He says, but that's the whole point, right? Look at yourselves. You are the thing that I rest my reputation on. You as a church, you are what I have accomplished, what God has accomplished through me in you. You, you are my resume, not what I've done, not the fact that I've been beaten and run out of town. And I mean... Think about Christ. Christ crucified on the cross. A Messiah was to be the king. Messiah was to be the one that leads Israel into prominence in the world and reestablishes the sovereignty of the nation. And the, the, the Messiah, the, the king, ends up nailed to a cross. And this is one of the reasons that many Hebrews, many Jews, don't accept Jesus as Messiah because Messiah doesn't get killed. That's not the story. Your king doesn't get killed. A, a dead Messiah is no good, right? And Paul is taking up the same argument and saying that, you know, it was through the cross. It was in the moment of brokenness and weakness, of defeat, that God was victorious. It is in the midst of pain and suffering and weakness that God shows up. And in the course of the letter, Paul says this, and this is our scripture for today in 2 Corinthians. It says, he, he being God, says to me, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is made perfect in weakness. So I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities for the sake of Christ. For whenever I am weak, then I am strong. And so in the course of his arguing to the Corinthians about himself and trying to reestablish his relationship, he mentions, we've used before the passage where he says that the ministry of the church, our ministry, It's the only time Paul actually talks about what the ministry of the church is. He says, is reconciliation. And it comes in this line of reasoning, in this letter, in which he's trying to reconcile himself back to the Corinthians, to bring that relationship back together, to mend the broken bridges that have been caused by these other people coming in and stirring up trouble. Over and over in his letter, he speaks of his love and his sacrifice for the church. He says, they're right, I am nothing but I have become nothing so that you might be something. He encouraged his, his church to take on his example. And he says, you need to be yoked to the cruciform ministry. And what is cruciform? It's the cross. So this picture of a broken, dying Messiah, this picture of a broken, flogged, stoned, near-death Paul is the model for the church. And so last week, If you remember, we talked about the issue of the meat being sacrificed to idols 
And Paul says, no, that's, that's not actually done anything to the meat. You're free as a Christian to eat that meat. You're not participating in the idol worship as a result. We know as worshipers of the one true God that nothing happened there, and we worship our God, and so you can eat it with free conscience. But then he goes on to say, however, if there's someone in your midst who doesn't understand that, and you eating that meat would in some way be a stumbling block or be a hindrance for them to enter the relationship that you've found, you better not do it. And so the, the sort of operating principle is we have rights, but we also as church have as a church, as Christians, have responsibilities. And we ought to be willing to give up our rights for the betterment of the other people. Right? And so that was kind of the message we came away with last week from 1 Corinthians. This week, Paul goes further. He's upping the ante. He's taking it to the next level. He says, not only should you be willing to give up some rights, you better be willing to suffer. And when he says suffer, he means suffer. Right? Think about the first century and the church, and for the first few hundred years of the church, what you know about that history. Paul knows what it's like to be a Christian in this world, in a world in which the pagan, the Roman world hated them, right? They saw them as outcasts. They actually saw them as atheists because they refused to participate in all the culture, all of the uh, religious uh, events and rituals that would happen in everyday life, they backed out of. And because of that, they were seen as an aberrant, weird cult that had no place in the culture. And when things bad happened, there was a fire in Rome, the emperor blamed on the Christians, and they started feeding them to lions. And that's kind of how the persecution got rolling. And throughout the first 300 years, it happens over and over and over again. And so when Paul writes to them and says, you better be willing to crawl up on your cross, right? Very willing to bear your cross. You better be willing to do the thing that I did. He's not joking. He's lived that life. He knows what it's like to stand up and speak the gospel in a culture that is so hostile to it. And so he's preparing them and saying, you better be willing. You think I'm weak? You better be willing to look weak. You better be willing to sacrifice. You better be willing to give up of your resources. And at the end of his letter, he turns to one of the accusations that had been leveled against him regarding the offering that he's trying to teach or to gather, to take to the church. And one of the reasons he was doing that, we mentioned last week, is he's trying to, uh, to create a community amongst a largely Jewish church with a Gentile church. And one of the ways that can be done is for the Gentiles who have means to share with the Jewish church back in Jerusalem. It's one of the ways he can tie them together. Because if you recall, the Jerusalem church in the first century is not having an easy time at all. Right? You've got a powder keg of culture and, and riots that happen all the time. You've got a very poor church that is hated by Romans and the Jews there. So everybody hates them. Right? And so they're, they're small groups of people that are just on the out. And so this is a way for Paul to gather a gift from the rest of the church and go back and give it to Jerusalem, who desperately needs it. And that's when the super apostles say, how do you know he's not just pocketing the money? And that's a, one of the, the things. And so he turns, it, turns back to that at the end and says, as, as a person of Jesus, as someone who's willing to sacrifice and give up, you better, you better collect some money. Because this is what we do. The, the, the divine grace that you've been given is not just so that you can benefit. It's not just so that you can be saved and go to heaven someday. You haven't just punched your ticket and get to ride through life. You have been invited into a life and Jesus has done tremendous things for you in order to reconcile you to himself. And now that divine grace that has been given to you must be shared with other people. And that happens through relationship. It happens through the giving of resources. It happens in many different ways. At the end of his letter, Paul is focusing on that, that gift that he needs to take back to Jerusalem. 
Paul ends up being for his church in this letter is the example, right? And so he's, he's not only trying to reestablish a relationship in order to lead them into the life they should lead as Christians, to put them back on the right track, but he also in the letter becomes for them and for us as a result, the example, right? So all these things we've talked about, but Paul embodies. It's not like he's just, you know, do as I say, don't do as I do. Like he's living this life. Right? We all know ultimately he will be beheaded in Rome as a result of, of what he teaches and where he goes and what he says. Um, so while Paul calls us to be certainly uh, sort of weak in the world's eyes, to be meek, as Jesus would say, uh, to, to take up a position with the poor, to share our resources, not to be too proud, not to think too highly of ourselves, um, we, are to, we are to be lowly in, in very real ways, this Christian thing is not for the weak of heart. You cannot truly be weak in spirit. Uh, you must be strong like Paul. And so the question as we read this sort of winding, somewhat in times bizarre letter from Paul to his church at Corinth is what in the world does it have to do with us? Because if, if you, as you go and read that, you're going to get very pointed issues that have to do with that particular church and that particular place in time. And a lot of times we have to, when we deal with this letter, say, okay, well, What's going on here? It's not something that you can literally just pick up and move and say, okay, boom, here we are as a manual in the year 2021. I and mean, all these issues are the same. I think I've hinted at it already, but the, the most important thing that we can take, the biggest lesson we can take from this letter is the example of Paul, is the gift that he gives us in this letter, which we don't really have other, other places, of the things that he did, the things that he's undergone, the attitude he has towards his churches through the entire letter, he continues to return to them and say, I love you, right? I've done all this for you because God has, this is the mission that God has put me on. Um, and, and it is that entering into weakness. I mean, remember, remember who Paul was to begin with. Paul was the super rabbi in Jerusalem. His life was set out ahead of him. He had likely at some point a place on the Sanhedrin, which was the governing council. It would be basically Congress for us. He was on the fast track to being wealthy and popular and well thought of and respected. He had it all on a silver platter and he threw it all away to go do this Jesus thing, right? This is, this is who Paul is. And he reminds us in his letter that he gave all of that up to become a traveling missionary, to literally carry some tent making supplies with him from town to town to make a little cash here and there, to live a poor life, to be beaten and flogged, to become bow-legged, little man with a unibrow, who speaks the word of God. And as we know, is if there's ever a super, super apostle, this is the guy. But it doesn't look like anything that you would think a mighty warrior for God would. It is a meek, unassuming, probably unattractive man going through hell in order to preach the word of God. That is our model, and that is the lesson that we need to be taking from 2 Corinthians today. Because we sit here in the year 2021 in America as a church. This church is 200 years old. And we look around and there are a number of churches in our town even that are better attended, much more well-funded. This week, Daniel and I have been putting some budgets together to try to uh, up the quality of our uh, online streaming and, and do some marketing things. And you know, we're scribbling and scraping and you know, trying to put a you know, sub $10,000 budget. And we know of another church that we have some connections with that just dropped $60,000 on video equipment. We don't have that, right? We just, we just don't, right? 
we, for the last 30 years, as I go back through membership writers, sort of a steady decline in people as they move on from this life or for one reason or the other, they pick up and go to another church. We have this service. We have another one at 8.30. This morning, I had about 20 people in it. So we're looking at 50 or 60 people that are coming right now regularly attended. In the world of church, you measure, if there are things you measure, it's attendance, giving, budget, right? These are like the, the metrics, unfortunately. And I, we've talked, I, I think that's the wrong thing to be measuring and talking and focusing on. Um, but even within the church world, by all the measurement standards, you know, we're, we're weak. I don't think that's a surprise, but I don't think some of you are new. Maybe you don't know that, but surprise, <laughs> this, is, this is the place that you've come. But it is in the midst of our weakness that God shows up. It is in being humble before God, recognizing that, no, we don't have all the resources. We're not buying seven and $8,000 cameras to do a live stream for Facebook. We're not running TV ads and radio ads. Right? We don't have $80,000 sound systems. We have a 150-year-old building. But we have everything that we need. We have everything that we need. It's springtime. The sun's shining through the winter or the, through the windows this morning. This morning, it was shining on that window behind us. I couldn't even see the see the uh, congregation. It was so bright. There's Jesus back there. I don't I don't know if you've seen it. You can turn around and look if you want to. But he's he's holding some lambs, right? And here's Jesus just shining in my face this morning, right? And it was a, it was a stark reminder that he's here. God is here. What we have to do is is like the second the church of Corinth, Second Corinthians. We have to listen. We have to listen to Paul and the other writers of the New Testament. We have to listen to Jesus, to God, and we have to be willing to open our hands and open our hearts, open our minds and our pocketbooks at times when the need arises and say, God, I don't know what exactly you have in store, but I'm here for it, right? We have to gather as a family, the 30 people, 30, 40 people that are in here. We got to get real close, real tight. Those churches that Paul wrote to, we've talked before, they're 20 people. They're smaller than we are. And Christianity exploded from them. You don't think God can do that here? We are in the middle of Lent, marching towards Easter, in which Jesus will be nailed to this one day, and three days later, walks out of the grave. This is our God. That is our God. The God that goes right into brokenness, into weakness, comes here in the midst of the struggle that this church has been having for decades, and says, I've got new stuff to do. I have new life to breathe here. I am a God of resurrection and restoration. And I know with every fiber of my being that that's what God wants to do here. That's why I'm here. It's why Daniel's jumped in. It's why you all have started coming that have started coming because something new has happened here. And as we, as we stand right here today in the beginning of March, as the sun starts shining again, the snow is hopefully gone, right? We start to have warmer days. Life begins again in many different ways in many different places. The pandemic is coming at least down and we can do things again. We can gather again. Now's the time. Now's the time for us to band together, to rise up, to listen to God as he speaks to us, to spend time listening to God for what he wants to have done here, what he wants us to do, because new life is coming. 
The question is whether or not we're going to open ourselves to the possibility, the reality, and put ourselves in a place to be agents of that life. In the second Corinthians letter to his church, Paul makes very clear by his writing that failure for him is not an option. Paul didn't need that church. Paul's church is all through the Mediterranean. It was a key city, but the church is going to survive if Corinth falls. He's got plans to go on to Rome. He's got plans eventually to go on to Spain. He never actually makes it there. He's got churches in Philippi, Ephesus, Thessalonica, which we looked at a couple weeks ago. He's got plenty of other churches, and he's going on to build many more. He very easily could have thrown in the towel and said, forget you guys. You don't get it. You're a mess. It's over. But God called him there. He had a mission to do, and he was not going to give up. And so time and time again, he visited, he writes. There are some scholars who think that the letter that we're talking about today is actually five different letters, right? He doesn't give up. He just keeps pounding and pounding and pounding, doing the thing that God has called him to do, knowing that God has called him. God will be faithful. Let's go back to our, our ideas of righteousness. God is always faithful to his promise. God's not given up on us. God's not given up on this town or the city or this country or this world. He never has and he never will. Our only decision is whether we're going to be part of that. Because if it's not going to happen here, it's going to happen somewhere. And I think it's going to happen here. I think about all the new people that started coming before we had to shut down back in November. Every week we're now, what? This is only second, third week we've Done the 11-3 service? Yeah, this is, this is tech, second week. Already new, every week, new faces. That's encouraging. That's exciting. Not because I want a church of 500 people. It's because I want 20 more people to be part of our family. I want 20 more people that I can lean on and they can lean on me. And when Jamie loses a loved one, she can come to band practice and share that with the group and know that she's going to be loved and we care and that when my wife has a concussion, that Donna's going to bring dinner. Right? That's church. That's family. That's what it's about. And I want more people to be part of that family. I hope you do. I hope you want to be part of that family. I hope you realize that's what this is. That's what it's all about. And so as we end today, I'm going to ask Daniel to come up and play a couple minutes of music. And guys and whoever can come on up. But we're going to spend a couple minutes in prayer. I'm going to ask that you do this throughout the entire week. As you wade through Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, if you have questions, please do ask. Um, but spend some time this week in prayer. And I want, you, I want us all as a church, all of us, the 80, 100 of us that are part of this community, to pray for renewed life, that that be found here. That the vision that we all see, that I hope you grab a hold of, that you see comes to pass, that that comes to life. I want you to pray that God would grant us all, not just those of us up here, but every one of us, the knowledge, the wisdom, and the vision for what we're supposed to do next. Now is a key time. As everything comes back to life, as the pandemic breaks open, now is the time that we need to be doing something and we need to figure out wisely what it is that God wants us to do now. What is the next step? And then I would ask that you would pray and ask that God show you what you are supposed to do. 
because this is not a project that two or three of us can pull off. We must all band together, pull together in the same direction. There can be no fighting. There certainly will be and can be disagreements. We need to do that in loving ways. We need to be willing to compromise. We need to listen to God, put his vision, his plan for this place first, his kingdom first. And we all fall in line and work together. And so I ask that you ask that God show you the ways in which you are to be a part of that. And then also ask for the ability when the time comes to set aside our own desires, what we think needs to happen and latch on to what the community has discerned is the will of God. In the same way Paul set aside his future as a Pharisee to follow Jesus, we must set aside all of what we want to happen to follow what God needs to happen. And if we can do that, there's no telling what will happen here. I'm excited for it. So I'm going to start, uh, just say a couple words of prayer to lead us into prayer, and then I'm going to have the guys uh, play just for a couple minutes as we all pray together through these uh, questions and pleadings with God, and then we'll wrap up with some uh, final worship. So if you would bow your heads. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the good and gracious and merciful God that you are. I thank you for the people that you have gathered here already, for those that are already coming, for those that sense that you are present here, that there is a family here, there is a culture here of love and acceptance, of forgiveness and mercy that all stems from you. As we go through our days in the coming weeks and months, as we try to discern what it is that you would have done here in this time and place in this church, I ask that you would open our hearts and our minds to your leading and that you would do a new and mighty and great work here that this place might become a light to this town, to this state, and to this country. 